Hi, my name is Rachel Abel and I'm a community specialist and teacher, also known as Head of Making Friends. Recently though, I've been thinking about what that title means in the current COVID-19 crisis. We're experiencing a stark reminder that we are all part of one global community. It's clear that in order to keep ourselves safe, we need to look after one another. Clear communication and thinking about the needs of the collective has never been so vital. Through my research at UNSW, I've had the privilege of speaking with a number of community experts about how they communicate with their communities and why focusing on the collective serves not only the group, but the individual as well. To help us think through some of the communication issues we are all facing, I thought I'd share some of those extracts from those conversations with you. The first of our three key experts that you're about to hear from, Maz Farrelly, aka Maz Speaks, is a former and some would say recovering reality TV producer, turned speaker, author and CEO whisperer. Maz has worked on some of the biggest shows in what we know is a multi-million dollar industry, which of course aims to entertain, but also holds surprisingly important lessons about community and communication. doing a show called The Recruit, it was an AFL show, and one of the guys said, I want to leave, this is too difficult, you want us to be a team, and then you want to turn us against each other, and essentially that was the format of the show, but it was quite embarrassing to have to say to him, yes. But I guess, (laughs) I guess, you know, in terms of reality TV, The Recruit is, it's pretty much reality for a competitive sports person who plays as a team. You are going to win as a team and then you're going to get somebody who's going to have scored the most goals and they're moving up the league table in terms of the top goal scorer. They're yeah. going to get signed to a different team and bought by a different team. So kind of, it's kind of a reflection of their life. It is. It's interesting you say that. I did The Celebrity Apprentice and Dermot Brereton, the superstar AFL player, was mm. on it. And we would ask him, who was great on the team today? And he'd tell you. And then mm. we'd say, who was weak? And he would never say anything, everyone was great. And afterwards I said to him, this happened about three or four times, I said to him, look, I'm not asking you to stab them, but I am asking you to be honest and just tell me. And he said, I'll give you my background. I work on a team. Mm. I work on a team. Mm. And when you're a team, you're a team, you know. So I will never bag anyone on my team because they're my brothers. We are a team. And when he said that to me, because I have quite a small brain, I suddenly went, oh, my God, you're right. I now, I get this. Whereas people who are in PR or, you know, they would quite happily say, they were rubbish, I was amazing, I'm great, get rid of them. (laughs) Brilliant. But Dermot could never say it because his life had been part of being a community Mm. and you look after each other and you never criticise one another and you just don't do it. And when he explained that to me, Ah, yeah, I get that. And that, I think, is, is really lovely. And it's, it's like going to sports. You know, when you go to sports and you look at the crowd, one half's wearing blue, one half's wearing red. Now, you could just turn up wearing whatever you're going to wear, but you don't. You wear yeah. red. And then you yeah. look on your way there and you'll see other people wearing red and you kind of go, hi, and you'll see someone else and you go and stand in the red area. Yeah. You don't have red, blue, red, blue, red, blue, red, blue, red, blue. We... We do it, you know, we deliberately do it. We mark ourselves as part of that tribe. And when you're part of that tribe, you belong to them. And there's a pride in that. And there's 
I dated um I dated this guy forever ago. Uh, I have dated other people since, but this particular guy I dated forever ago, and he uh, was a supporter of the Rabbitohs, and they hadn't won forever. And I said, why do you keep supporting them? Because that made no sense to him. I thought if it was me, I'd just drop them and I'd go with someone else because uh, I'm as deep as a puddle. And he said, because you're with them through thick and thin. I thought, that's interesting. Yeah. We obviously come from different backgrounds because the reality <laughs> TV producer would be like, bye then, see ya. Uh, but yeah, they, he kept with them. And he said, you, you're with them. It doesn't matter whether you're losing. He said, actually, when you lose... That brings you together. Yeah. You know, happiness brings you together. Tragedy brings you yeah. together. Yeah. And he said, we're always tragic. And that <laughs> brings us together. That's the community, yeah. Things that bring you together are hardship and fun. Essentially, what Maz has told us is that when we put the needs of the group first, we build community. But when we put our individual needs first, we break it. Cross-cultural psychologist Harry Triandis suggested that the more we identify with the collective, the more our individual aims align with the aims of the community. He observed that in some highly collectivistic cultures, the difference between individual and collective aims could actually disappear entirely. Also, we know hardship and intense experience can bring people together. Researchers from the University of New South Wales and University of Queensland have found that what doesn't kill us makes our social bonds stronger. Social connection expert Brene Brown tells us that vulnerability is a core ingredient of social bonding. When we experience stressful situations, we become vulnerable, and this is thought to deepen human connection. So, when the competitors on Big Brother are asked to work together to keep a fire alight for three whole days straight, they really do end up forming connection. You're here now from Gopin of Parallel. Gopi is a social entrepreneur, storyteller, responsible tourism advocate and innovative community facilitator. He has extensive experience working with communities responding to a need, whether it's palliative care or natural disasters. I, you know, in my presentations or storytelling about this whole uh, intervention that we did during the flood, I always show a photograph of two women weavers. And it's a photograph where they are standing by a destroyed loom, but telling their story so passionately with so much of a smile on their face. This struck me so much uh, because there was already a resilient community, right? And how they are overcoming this whole story. So that is where we thought it's important for us to let the world know how strong these people are and how do we do it. So interestingly, Facebook uh, send a team. Facebook sent a team to study the impact of uh, what we did. So they came, so they were so impressed with what you'd done because through through the social media, you connected the world to this very, very small village in India. You connected people directly to what was happening there, to these families mm -hmm. of weavers. And yeah. as, as I understood it from when you, you told the story when, when I was in the room, when you told the story and I heard it for the first time, 
That was an immediate impact. You set that up really, really quickly. You gathered a huge following very, very quickly. And then you set up a funding site to sell the dolls. Yeah, yeah. It was all done in like four, four or five hours. Like even the when, when we decided to make the first doll, what we did was um, Lakshmi manages a lot of my, my friend who was the co-creator in this. She manages a lot of WhatsApp groups. So she send out a message to the all local uh, WhatsApp groups because during the flood, WhatsApp, Google and Facebook played a major role as a tool for people to stay connected. And I guess, you know, sometimes social media gets quite a bad rap in terms of the negative things that social media create. But actually, that is performed an amazing role. That So when we decided to make the dolls, other than sending messages on our WhatsApp group, what we did was on our, you know, the business websites, as well as our own personal profile, we started telling like, okay, at 9.30 a.m. we are going to be by this metro station. We are going to make the doll. And we told them a little story. First two minutes, there were only two of us. Then five, 10, 20. And every single media company in that city came there. And then and then they just, they, they made it viral, not us, you know. But we told story as authentic as it is possible no masala added to it it was exactly what was happening to it you know but it had passion in it people could relate to it so someone sitting uh, like Lakshmi actually even walked into uh, the Google headquarters in the US with the little doll you know because there were a lot of people from Kerala who were in higher positions you know in the CXOs their families were stuck in the flood so they could relate to it mm. You know, so so. Okay, so the family, so people from Kerala working in the US, US, Australia, all over, like yeah. H HP in Sydney, uh, ran a Chekuti doll workshop. You know, and there were so many universities around the world um, who did that. So people could relate to it, and but all this happened because of the powerful storytelling over social media, like, you know, during the rescue. Also, one thing that we focused. Uh, I was telling all my colleagues that the moment you see a positive story, document it and share it online. It doesn't need to be an essay. It could be two liners, three liners, like just to give you one idea, like one of the um, uh, schools, it's a four story school. There were about 1,800 people who were stuck there. So we went there did the rescue like you know except for 250 people we managed to move uh, everyone else in the first 24 hours and the next day when we were leaving the place after water had gone down and people were all shifted to safe place i noticed there was one lady uh, refusing to leave so i asked her why don't you want to go home and she's she might be about 55 or 60 years old and she said See, this place has been my home for past four days. Do you really leave your home clean, uh, dirty when you leave? You keep it clean, right? So she cleaned up the place that she stayed. I'm talking about a hall where hundreds of people were sleeping and using it. So you can imagine how messy it would have been. And she 
and when I took a photograph, there was not even a small piece of paper anywhere and you could see the outside world reflected on the floor. So I took that particular photograph and I posted telling what she said that this was home for me and I don't, I will not keep it clean. It was read by far more than a million people. Next day morning when I woke up, every media house in India had carried that story. You know, so it is important to share these positive stories, especially during a disaster. And that's where you could use your business, you could use your net personal network, share the story everywhere. That's one step closer to building a resilient community. And more, or, more than all this, it was important to portray a positive image of Kerala to other people in other parts of the world who want to support us. We know that you're super passionate. Do you describe yourself as a community leader? No, <laughs> I'm not. What, what do you describe yourself as? I work with the community. I, I would, I think, fit into the definition of a social entrepreneur and maybe a storyteller. <laughs> Stories are powerful, and some of their power comes from their capacity to evoke empathy. Research now shows that stories move us in a way that dry information and statistics just can't. Behavioural psychologist Dr Susan Weinshek has demonstrated that when we're presented with raw facts, only the listening and word processing centres of the brain are activated. However, when we hear a story, we experience additional brain activity in the areas we'd expect to be activated as if we were living the experience ourselves. Humans are hardwired to love stories. As public policy professors Crow and Jones tell us, stories help us to understand the world. We can see this from Gopi's account of a woman's personal experience during the flood that had the capacity to go viral and communicate the hope and resilience of a local community. A 2019 report from We Are Social tells us that our use of social media and the internet in general is growing every day. This means that when we share stories via social media, we might just reach half the population of the planet. Our final guest is Mike Anderson, Community Education Project Officer with Surf Lifesaving New South Wales. Mike is part of a team that wants everyone in our broader community to feel a sense of belonging. From those who live on the coast to those who've never even seen the ocean, Surf Lifesaving are attempting to build relationships and communicate effectively to engage all kinds of communities. You're working at grassroots level with the community. Are there lessons that you might have picked up in the years that you can share about how to go about doing that? Yeah, I mean, certainly from from a delivering content and knowledge point of view, what happens if I can't swim? Do I not swim outside of the flags? Um, you know, it's just misconceptions from our point of view and that really help, or is helping us focus on our content and our messaging, um, you know, and, and thinking of ways of engaging local communities, how best to get that info out there. Is it through local religious leaders? Is it through family groups? Um, is it targeting parents? Is it looking towards maybe grandparents because they're doing a lot of the caring these days? Um, you know, it's the 
the simple handing out leaflets has a, a massive part of what we do, but I think we we're now in a place where we can look to expand what we do um, and differ the ways that we deliver those messages, whether it is um, a, a beach program where we, we get people down onto the beach and physically walk them through the dangers and looking at the danger signs, having them had talks to buy the, the lifesavers on patrol that day, so you know, those local people that know that beach inside out, or whether we're going into Western Sydney and talking to high school kids, which is part of our you know high school program that we're running at the minute, they'll get a presentation about beach and surf safety and then we'll follow that up with a practical skill day down in Port Kembla. Um, we're looking at working with Royal Life Saving who deal with you know, the inland waterways, the swimming pools, because we know that there's a problem there and we're effectively working you know, to achieve the same goal. So by maybe adding some practical skill-based programs and beach surf safety to their learn to swim programs, you know, there's there's a there's a lot of opportunity, and I think we, you know we're ready and at a place where we can start exploring that now, um, but also exploring the you know, the cultural sensitivity side of it. You know, there might be a reason for for certain groups not wanting to swim in a busy in between the flag area, and that might draw them away from that. Um, you know, we need to be targeting these groups too. We need to give them the education that it, yeah, you know, the, the cultural side of it is there, but the safety side really needs kind of addressing and you know, they, they need that information. They need to learn how to identify rip current. They need to know why the flags are the best place to be. And it is so beautiful that the Australian beach is one of those places where I certainly found that you, you meet friends there, people from the local community, you know, the kids will play together, they meet up on the beach, they go to clubs together. And the surf club is often at the centre of those activities and helping to not only like the safety, but also kind of helping people to feel that there is a community feel to the beach. It's very much part of life if you live near the coast or even if you only visit the beach kind of, you know, once every few months. Yeah, um, yeah. Spot on, it, it is massively community generated um, and we know there are gaps as well in, in certain areas. There's a, a fantastic programme and initiative running down at Gary in the minute in the, in the National Park where because of its isolated location, they can sometimes struggle to get patrolling members because there's no, not much housing around there. So what they've done is, is gone out into the, to the local communities, to the people that are visiting that beach at the weekends, you know, um, and looking at those beachgoers to become patrolling members, and especially in Western Sydney, where we know, you know there's high cold and multicultural areas, we've gone out there and, and we've proactively looked to source members of those communities to become lifesavers at that local beach. Um, and that's a really great way of moving forward, is you know, if you come down to the beach um, and you can immediately kind of recognise someone that you, you feel familiar and comfortable with. It has a great snowball effect of you know, getting more people into the community, getting more people involved in those clubs. So, Mike is telling us that having diverse networks and strong relationships is key to getting your message across. But what does the research say about the positive impact of networks, both within and outside the community? It has to do with social capital, which we can understand as a positive product of good quality human interaction. The result of this is that people get along better, the economy grows and social networks deepen. Iconic institutions like Surf Lifesaving are significant contributors to social capital as they benefit not only those directly involved, but the whole community. 
Political scientist Robert D. Putnam breaks down social capital into three features, norms, networks, and trust. When it comes to networks, the concepts of bonding and bridging can help us to understand the value of the connections between self-lifesaving members and other community groups. While bonding occurs within a group or community, bridging takes place between different groups or communities. Putnam describes bonding capital as useful for getting by, while bridging capital is essential for getting ahead. This is because bridging provides opportunities to access resources that aren't available in the immediate community. So, now that you have your networks, how do you get your message across? You put those networks to use. As Mike said, partnering with community leaders and consulting with different communities is critical. A recent Nigerian study in community development identified effective communication as an absolute necessity. The study found that the sharing of up-to-date and relevant information empowers members of communities, particularly where community members have opportunities to share their ideas, problems and solutions. So bringing that all together, an important part of social capital is networks. And bridging those networks is essential for effective communication and community development. I hope that you found those extracts from our community podcast interesting, informative and useful. Please stay safe and stay well. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you head over and follow me at Rachel Abel on Facebook or Rachel Abel underscore on Twitter. You can find snippets and additional content on the Missing Piece YouTube channel and all other kinds of posts on our Instagram at tmp.podcast. I'm Rachel Abel, head of Making Friends, and you've been listening to The Missing Piece.